to another Scottish documentary podcast. Uh, today we've got an interview with Mark Cousins that I recorded a couple of weeks back. I'm going to play the interview just as it happened, but before I do, I'd like to say that this interview goes online just as we're releasing clips from a 2012 masterclass uh, that Mark did with us here at the Art College. It's available on our website, scottdoc.com, under the Masterclasses tab, and on Vimeo and YouTube just by searching uh, Scottish Documentary Institute Mark Cousins Masterclass uh, and things like that. So yeah, worth checking them out. Anyway, here's the interview. Should be if it's on mains. Yeah. It's recording now, yeah. Right, okay. <clears throat> okay, so we're joined here with Mark Cousins. Uh, Mark's a hard, hard man to introduce and describe uh, as he's done such a massive amount. Um, started as a film critic, interviewing directors such as Martin Scorsese and Roman Polanski. Um, and then he was artistic director of the Edinburgh Film Festival and moved into sort of making films, did the 15-part story of film, uh, and now does a lot of essay-based uh, sort of personal-style documentaries. Um, but it's easier if you probably just uh, Google his name and see the uh, overwhelming amount of work that um, comes up. So anyway, Mark, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm putting my microphone on. Is that recording okay now? Yep, yep, you're sounding good. Um, I'll start off... Uh, before I'd ever met you, I went to go and see your um, film, What Is This Film Called Love, back in the 2012 Edinburgh Film Festival. And um, more than anything, I remember uh, just admiring the fact that you'd actually had the balls to go and um, just go and do the film and put it up there on the big screen. And um, you seem to have sort of kept going with this style of film, but what sort of response, response did you expect um, this kind of work to get initially? I thought people would slag me off for making something too personal. Uh, too like selfish almost. I think I thought people would think it was egotistic, but for me it just felt more punky than that. You know, I just thought I, I've, I've always uh, been influenced by how the music world works, and people in the music world make films in their bedroom all the time. You know, and uh, so I just thought I could make an ultra personal, zero budget thing, and then if people think it's shite, it doesn't matter because it hasn't cost me anything, it hasn't cost anybody anything. And the converse was that, you know, that it got some bad reviews, but a lot of people liked the film, but also hugely important for me, it absolutely liberated me uh, intellectually, stylistically, in terms of budget. When you have no budget, no producer at the start, no script, no plan, no equipment, uh, then you can go wherever you want. And you've, um, you've sort of kept going with this kind of work, so would you say it's become like a little bit of an addiction now? Yeah, I think addiction is the right word. When you think you... When you feel that there's something that you haven't been able to do for a long time, and for the longest time, cinema meant that you had to get money to do things the way the money people did, wanted you to. So when you thought there was a whole area of cinema that was not possible to do, then when you realise you can sort of make films about whatever you want, and I've made films about Albania and children, and and I've just made a film with a great Iranian director, which is sort of about all sorts of things, like bodies and painting and everything, then 
you realize, wow, I can go anywhere and and there's a vast plane in which I can work. And so it does feel like an addiction or maybe like, you know, when you're a child and your mom and dad take you to the beach and you look at the beach and you want to run over the whole beach immediately and run into the sea. That's what I've realized that making essay films are like. And where, you've sort of touched on it a little bit, where would you say the motivation comes from sort of like, at its deepest level within you um, to do this kind of work or even make films in the first place? Oh, that's a good question. I think the um, desire to make films comes from the love of cinema. That sense of when you're sitting in the dark looking at the big screen, you're seeing something that is incredibly alive. It's sort of, it's sort of luminous, but it's also dreamlike. It's almost like a kind of surrogate life. Um, what I love about cinema is that you can see lots of really, really painful films. Like I just saw 12 Years of Slave, the Steve McQueen film, utterly painful. And yet you're still safe when you're watching it. You know, you are not in that iniquitous situation yourself. So it's that combination of vitality and safety in the movies, which I love. And so when I'm making movies, I love trying to afford myself of that that com that weird combination of there and not there, present and, and absent. Uh, so I think that's why I want to make movies. And the sort of films that I make, I think come from a sense that like there's the outer world and the inner world. And, and the things that's often acclaimed in cinema is the outer world, objective portraits of things, especially critics like a serious political cinema often, and so do I. But I'm excited by that kind of combination between the, the outer world and what and the inner world, the, can, the way your thought, hap, thought process happens. I've been sitting all day editing and my mind's been going all over the place between silly things and stupid things and hunger and boredom and thrilling excitement. And movies are very good at capturing those kind of switches in tone. And so I think that at a sort of serious level is why I want to make this essay style of cinema. Um, you've mentioned before on the, the sort of in the masterclass that we're about to put online um, that you don't necessarily aim for um, a wide audience and you don't try and make things um, necessarily universal to as many people as possible, um, which is kind of interesting as just out of film school and things like that, um, we were always told to try and make the film as universal as possible, and that was kind of hammered home. Um, but you look to sort of communicate something else or speak to people in a slightly different um, way. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, did did Van Gogh try to think of his audience and think make his paintings available to a wide an audience as possible? Did did Joy Division try to make their music for as wide an audience as possible? You know, that's my granny used to say that's a road to no town. And the you know, if you think too much about how do we please people and who let's try and involve as many, try and, and uh, get as many people into the cinema as possible, that is a kind of road to no town. Now, there's a difference between that and not being elitist or exclusive. In a lot of my work, like in the story of film, which is this history of cinema, 15 hours long. I do not use any of the kind of 
fancy film language terms. The word auteur doesn't appear once. The phrase mise-en-scene doesn't appear once. That's because I don't want to exclude people. I want to leave the door open and say to people, really, you're, you're so welcome here. Please, please come in. There's a difference between that and changing and, and sort of debasing the language that you use in order to get to some kind of sense of what you think the audience has. To mention again the film 12 Years a Slave by Steve McQueen, one of the reasons why it's so great is that he ignored propriety or the sense of what the audience might, what might, what they might take or how, how far can I go, how much violence can I show. He did not ask himself those, those questions at all. He asked himself the question, what happened under slavery? Voila, that's it. You know, and if you ask yourself, what really happened in my story? Then you get to a kind of degree of integrity, hopefully, and the audience sees that, rather than trying to translate life and translate existence in order to make it palatable for an audience. <clears throat> I remember um, having a conversation with you before, and you mentioned it again earlier on there, um, about some of your work being criticised as um, overly self-indulgent um, and that sort of thing. But you had an interesting thing in response, talking about what it's like putting yourself on screen, the reasons why you're in some of your work and what that does and sort of to do with self-awareness. I don't remember what I said there, but I know there is a thing where, you know, where we're... we're we all try to hide our egos all the time. We all try to sort of hide the self, you know, and we say, no, 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 I don't want, you know, you know, you sort of try to deflect the conversation and turn it on to someone else. But I work a lot with children and, and you notice that children don't hide that at all. If they want pepperoni pizza, they just say, I want the pepperoni pizza, you know, and there's, and so there's, so we have to be a bit careful of not trying to be de terribly sort of middle class and deferential and you know I, this is not me and kind of veil do the dance of the seven veils about things you know it's better in some ways and a lot of artists deal with this this it's better just to be a bit more honest and a bit more sort of naked in front of the artwork and think okay i'm just gonna put my passions in here and see what happens now if you if you put if you put loads of things in your work and are completely oblivious to what else is happening in the world, you know, like the the complexity and the trauma and the tragedy of everyday life, then that starts to look very, very wanky indeed. But if you try and acknowledge that to be alive is both an external and an internal experience, then hopefully other human beings will uh, recognise that. Yeah, I think... I think it is something that sort of comes actually naturally. And I think so. that I think that there's a kind of there's a kind of art which is quite a male art I would say, you know, that it's the cult of the objective. You know, you're told when you're writing do not use the word I. This is the biggest sin to use the word I, you know. But if you think look at the some of the most innovative writers, it's people like Virginia Woolf or Helen Sixou, people who radicalise the eye and turn that into a kind of bedrock or a, a something on which to stand. And other great writers like James Joyce did exactly the same thing. He delved 
right into human subjectivity. And in cinema, David Lynch and Maya Deren, lots of people have understood that it's not simply indulgent to look at the personal or the intimate or the subjective. It's a kind of starting, a very, very good bedrock from which to build outwards. I'll move on to your newer film that I just watched that's going around festivals at the moment, um, Here Be Dragons, um, which, uh, which I enjoyed, so well done. Um, and uh, it's, it's similar to your other film, although it is a little bit different. Um, but tell me initially sort of why, why did you want to make this film? What was the sort of starting point? And maybe even a little bit about what it's about as well. You know, I'd love to know what I don't know. I'd love to, I'd love to realize that there's so much to learn in life, so much to discover. And one of the things I had to discover was the country of Albania. I'd never been there. I'd been a bit interested in the place. I'd read a couple of novels from there, seen a few movies, but I'd really no sense. It was a very close place for a long time. And then I got a, an email from some people, some of my work had shown in Albania, and they said, look, there's a crisis here in the Albanian film archive. Can you help? Can you come? And I said, absolutely. And I didn't know, I brought my little camera, didn't know if I, I said I might make a 20 minute film, but I knew that I would go and you never, never regret doing something you've never done before. You know, that sense of discovery and standing on snow that, that you've never walked on before. So I went and I filmed and I sort of tried to capture the pleasure of discovering through looking. I don't speak Albanian, so I couldn't like do interviews with people. I just wanted to see how much you can discover through looking. And, uh, and the film came out at sort of 80 something minutes and it became as you would expect, because it was based on looking, it became about the kind of visual culture of Albania, its cinema, its painting, its architecture, etc. And I just loved making it. Other than sort of the obvious factual things that you might have learned while making the film, did you learn anything more about your yourself while you were doing it? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I sort of, it reminded me that I like solitude. I spent a lot of time on my own walking around. Um, I learned, I like, I realized that I like having like a second pair of eyes, you could say. I spent time with two very interesting people, people Thomas Logarecci and Iris Ilesi, both of whom lived there. And they would take me thing, take me places and show me things. And I really loved that. It's almost like I closed my eyes and they took me by the hand and took me places and then op and then they said, take the blindfold off or open your eyes. And that was very nice. Uh, so I think that the main thing I learned in Albania is that sense of going there, trusting other people's experience, submitting to a place, submitting to a country, submitting to a complex political history, submitting to a group of people and all their lives and issues and emotions and lifestyles, and then just filming everything. Um, and it's always scary and I was scared when I came back from making this that film because I thought once again I've gone somewhere as a foreigner and made an outsider's perspective on something and that's so scary because you can just people can rip you to shreds they can say well what do you know 
and why shouldn't this why shouldn't somebody who knows this country really well make this film you know so it's always scary but i think that what i'm really interested in is the fact that we're all foreigners in in all in many ways in our in our everyday lives in our love lives in our discoveries of new books in situations like this you came along here your batteries weren't working and presume that you got a bit nervous about that you know and we're all sort of on the borderline of of fear and and anxiety and newness and that's kind of universal thing and so when i go to these places i always just think okay let's just try to capture that <clears throat> yeah, um, that's good. Uh, what, uh, my next question kind of isn't about isn't directly relating to this film, okay. so that's why it's a bit of an awkward transition. But um, what do you think filmmakers, uh, documentary or fiction, really should know? What's the one thing you think they should they should know the most before they set out to make a film? Well, I think the first thing is that you should know what you don't know. You know, you, you should, there's a real sense of, we've only got such a short time on this earth and you're never going to get to the end of experience. You're never going to see everything and feel everything and be moved by everything. And therefore you should be, it's brilliant to be aware of that. It's sort of surprising and disappointing the number of people who you meet who sort of think, okay, that's it. I've tasted everything that there is in life. Let's just pull the drawbridge up and watch X Factor for the rest of our lives and eat pizza. You know, there's a slight, there's a real sense of that. You know, so I think that, so I think that it's really good to know that there's a fantastic life out there beyond which you'll never get to the end of it, but go as fast as possible. You know, fill your tank and put your foot to the floor and see how far you get. But I mean, I think the the biggest kind of wisdom, the the best piece of advice that I've ever come across is something that I've mentioned a few times before, and it, it's in a book by Robert Bresson, and he says, um, "Try to show that which without you might never have been seen, and that which without you might never have been seen." And when you think about that. It's not that you have to com come up with something completely new. He's saying that there are things out there that you can help them to be seen. And I just love that. You know, d d d The great American filmmaker John Sayles puts it slightly differently. He says, put on screen lives that you have not seen on screen before. And I think that's brilliant advice as well. We don't need to see six guys walking down the street in line all dressed in suits because they're going to do a heist or something. We've seen that in Tarantino, we've seen that in Hong Kong cinema. We do not need to see that again. We do not need to see another Bollywood musical. We do not need to see these things that we've seen so many times. I want to see something that I've not seen before. And, and I think that's what we as filmmakers should try to show. Like your little film that you made about your mom coming into the room with the um the about about the lamp you know i'd never quite seen that before and that's and it doesn't have to be a big thing it can be a small thing um oh, thanks <laughs> um what maybe just what you said but what would you say 
or maybe not even what would you say, but what would you do if you were my age again, 23, or even younger, maybe just fresh out of high school, wanting to go into film, um, documentary or otherwise? Um, what would you What would you do? Would you Would you go to film school, or would you just sort of um, tackle, you know, the world separately? Depends, you know, where you live in the world and, you know, if, if you live in Egypt or if you live in Tehran or if you live in America. The main, the perfect day for a filmmaker is to get up in the morning and watch Orson Welles or Ozu and then take your camera out and to, to some distant beach where there's nobody there and sit there for two or three hours and just try to work out what you can shoot, what on a beach you've never seen before what how you can shoot that and then come home and get drunk and edit it that combination you know of of discovery and intoxication and learning is great now i think film schools are very good and i didn't go to film school but i know that many people did and as long as film schools like overstimulate you they be, as long as they bewilder you with the amount of stuff to see and think about that's great if film school teaches you a formula uh, then fuck off out of there and do get out of there and shake the dust from your sandals because you don't want a formula you know you want the opposite you know you want a loosening a fluidity of of thought not a not a, 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 a a fix a fixing of thought. So I think film schools are very good as long as they show people loads and loads and loads of films, and then they, as long as they loosen them up. <clears throat> what do you think um, of the sort of documentary output coming out of um, Scotland at the moment? Um, what where do you think it's going, or do you think it's where do you think it is compared to ten years ago, or where do you see it going? Documentary output all over the world is changing because of the libera liberation of the filmic process, because we can film pretty much anything we want. Uh, things are looking, I think, particularly good out of Scotland. You know, I think I have to say substantially to do with the influence of the Scottish Documentary Institute and its emphasis on form and cinema and inventiveness, etc. Uh, there, the, for a long time in Scotland, the the sainted Pope of documentary cinema, John Grierson, had his fingers at our throat, and he slightly narrowed what we could do. There was too much of the pulpit about the, about Grierson's ideas in cinema, in my opinion. But I think now there are very good f documentary films coming out of Scotland, uh, and also. China and Japan and incredible films coming out of Iran. So Scotland is doing very well uh, in documentary cinema. It can do better still. And um, what is it you're working on? Uh, work, working on just now. You're editing today. You said, but what? Um, what have you got coming up, or what's about to happen? Uh, so I've just finished. Uh, a film called Life Maybe that's co-directed with Mania Akbari, the great filmmaker who was who's most famous for being in Abbas Kiarostami's film Ten. So she and I have just directed a film, and I'm just editing at the moment with Timo Langer, a, 
a, a film about D.H. Lawrence in Sardinia, a trip that he made in January 1921. And I'm making two more films. Uh, one in Belfast with the music of David Holmes, the great composer, and one in Stockholm with the, mu the, with the music of Benny Anderson, who used to be an ABBA, and he's now making a sort of melancholic folk music, and uh, so I'm making two sort of documentary musicals, you could say, in Belfast and Stockholm. Okay. Um, unless anything amazing has come to mind that you, you, you feel like you want to say just now, that's more or less me through my questions um, so yeah thanks very much for that um, always always interesting things that you've got to say and uh, inspiring and things like that so um, yeah thanks very much <laughs> thank you thank you thanks for listening uh, like I mentioned previously we have video clips of the 2012 masterclass with Mark on our website www.scottdoc.com also searchable on YouTube and Vimeo please feel free to uh, subscribe to those channels or indeed uh, to the podcast on SoundCloud uh, and now also available on iTunes by searching uh, Scott Doc or Scottish Documentary Podcast and you'll get all the uh, updates uh, through that. Uh, so yeah, if you enjoyed, please share with anyone you think might be interested. All the best. <laughs> <laughs>